Hello, Anton. Hello. All right. I've got to warn you that we have some construction going on in, in the house. So. Oh, okay. I've got to warn Sounds. you the neighborhood dog is uh, on the loose and being very active to this morning, too. All right. Are you still based in Berkeley? That's right. Yeah, I'm still Wonderful. in Berkeley. Wow. Well, I'm coming to you from Las Vegas, Nevada, where I'm now based. Cool. And so the thought was I sent a, a podcast out maybe a couple of weeks ago. A short one, just to say, hey, if anyone else is still in this community, please get in contact. I got one email, and for some other reason, Kyle Harrington, who's a fellow who I met um, at one of the A-Life conferences in 2012, also contacted me and asked about our mutual friend John uh, to see what was happening with him. But yeah, so one piece of contact, and the thought at the time was I was going to try and model football hooliganism as a regional fighting style in the various parts of London. And the fellow I was corresponding with obviously was clearly turned off by that idea and didn't respond after that. So <laughs> I got exactly one email and thank you to the one email correspondent. But um, I did want to have the chance to chat with you today because I went back and listened to some of the old podcasts and I thought, wow, what are Anton's up to now? <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I was working at Google for a while and then I'm, I'm now working at Adobe working on 3D modeling software. Wonderful. Yeah, so that's been cool. Um, in fact, it's been interesting enough that it's been actually hard to divert any energy towards the, the A-Life projects mm. because there's enough cool things going on at work. Um, but uh, I did manage to finish this artificial clock project, which I was working on, which is this um, Arduino-based um, uh, clock that, that I made that sort of is, is based on cute little, you know, fairly fake, but uh, interesting artificial life things in it. Mm -hmm. um, and so the idea there was to try and see if we can make a useful household appliance out of a life stuff. Because it's, So it looked like a regular digital, I mean, I've seen a photo of it. It looked like a regular yeah. digital clock with some kind of cellular automata simulation going on where the, the numbers weren't, basically. Yeah, so the numbers themselves, um, the way that actually works is uh, I tried to make it sort of as bottom up as I could, and I only got so far. And I thought it'd be interesting to talk about like how far I got, and, mm -hmm. and uh, maybe just discuss ideas about how to how to get farther, and also just kind of the, the interesting things to think about there. And uh, the idea I had was, um, you know, we always do this a life stuff, and then like Dave Ackley has talked about, can we make real things on top of essentially cellular automata like things and um steven wolfram talked about like mining the cellular automata universe and stuff mm. so i thought okay well what does that actually look like you know can we actually sort of make a, a useful object on top of um a lifelike principles mm. um and so i thought okay well it's an easy object to make <laughs> i thought well maybe a clock could be useful and so i thought what does it look like if you have like a living clock um and so the idea was basically like can i make some kind of biological ecosystem that as a byproduct um, produces a clock. So in the same way that, you know, we keep bees um, in a hive and bees sort of as a byproduct of their life produce honey and wax and things. And we sort of harvest that byproduct for daily use. I thought, well, can we do that with artificial a life and what can we harvest from it? And so I thought, mm -hmm. okay, well, maybe we could harvest the notion of time because that's useful for us, uh, a, a sort of precise timepiece. So the thing that I made um, has a bunch of little ants running around it, on it, and there's also growing plants, and the ants um, harvest plants, and they sort of place them in the middle, and they make piles, and the piles they make happen to form the time, the digits of the clock. Mm. And so they're doing their own little ant thing, which is stockpiling their things, um, but we get uh, a clock out of it, sort of. They're, they're not aware of the clock in any way, um, but they are aware of basically little pheromone scents that I, I squirt into their little ecosystem, which happens to correspond to digits. So mm. it's a bit heavy handed in the sense that, you know, still somewhere under there is like wizard of Oz. Something knows the time, which is the Arduino processor. And it presents the ants with this pheromone map, which they use to drive their behavior. So it's not really what I would say would be like, forget the term, but like hard a life in a sense that like it's, truly emerging from it you know is there still an invisible hand so to speak to, to guide the ants to make the time digits but i thought that um you know so it was, but it was like a start and so then the next steps would be 
to try to make it closer to, to being bottom up. Like, mm. can we design some kind of behavior that would actually, you know, result in something meaningful for us as a byproduct of their own mm. life? Does that make any sense? Yeah. I mean, what one could do is potentially uh, seven segment, right? Seven segment LED. That's yeah. basically what you're modeling is make each of the segments um, some kind of food byproduct or something that changes mm-hmm. over time. Uh, I don't know if you could do it numerically, but I'm pretty sure you could. Mm. And therefore, rather than the segments being kind of squirted into action when the numerics were needed, mm. they could just be piled in such a way where they would be eaten, decay, and mm-hmm. then regenerate, um, mm. almost like a plant, basically. Yeah. But that would have the kind of segment um frequency which is what you're looking for basically what you're looking for is the segment frequency it's something that the ants will either eat or interact with in such a way where time will progress because of the ants interaction um so yeah. you could always take it one step away and then you'd get to another problem space which i can't quite visualize in my own head yet but you know you could keep removing the problem spaces until you get to this notion of emergence, you kind right, of walk right. backwards until you fall into emergence, basically. Right, right. Um, sort of what I'm trying to do is walk walk further and further backwards until yeah. it's blurry, like where the actual thing is coming from. And I think, mm. you know, we can lay out the segments, um, but then it's like, well, who laid out the segments, right? Mm. <laughs> so, like, we laid it out in a, in a sort of pleasant way. So can we, you know, push it further down and down? And so that's kind of the the artistic statement so to speak because i'm Mm. trying to see how far can i push it down because you know maybe it is interesting to think like one way of thinking about it is is um can can you at least imagine training or breeding an actual ant to behave like this in real life rather Mm. than be programmed right so can we if we were to build this thing in actual meat space would would that be feasible even in theory and so that's kind of the the thing I'm playing with at the moment. It is interesting, this notion of the frequency that you have through the segments and the perception of time. I'm reminded of the film Predator, that they have a numerical system that the Predator has a countdown. Mm-hmm. It explodes at the end, basically. But this is, that's a spoiler. Um, but uh, <laughs> that it has a countdown clock that's built into it. You see this segment, which looks like it's little hand um, in LED space. So the segments are the artificiality of the system. It, it might just be interesting to create some kind of countdown space based on a, a plant, a, a perceived plant or some kind of, I don't know, some kind of organic material that uh, yes. is predated upon, like, you know, a, yeah, an yeah. algae or something. Now, algaes are very interesting. You could potentially do it with algae and fish. Um, mm. And that would be a very different kind of clock. I'm, I'm mindful, certainly, of a lot of these um, biotic houses now that they build periodically in far-flung parts of the world where they have a complete aquaponic system which both grows plants, maintains fish. Some of them deal with waste, although human waste is a very interesting thing to have to deal with. But, you know, I could imagine a water clock potentially. I'm not sure as a child I I read the, you know, comic books as they came out and the they had these sea monkey things, which are little brine yeah, shrimp. Right, um, yeah. I'm pretty sure you could train brine shrimp. Um, well, not train them, but just use their feeding patterns as a way to to make a clock. The the squirter mechanism as being the primary way to do it seems to be the best possible way. But I'm sure there are plants that have some phased. I mean, again, here we're talking probably about months, not about right. minutes and yeah, seconds in a clock. But at least in theory, you could imagine that. You know, maybe you're not making a practical minute to minute mm. clock, but you know, you could imagine making a, a practical calendar or something. Mm. Yeah, no, that would be fascinating. An organic calendar um, that had both plant and animals. I I do wonder. Yeah, I do wonder the humanity of the or the whatever the the terminology right. is for right. the animals. Are you just forcing them into? But then again, the fish that live in these organic houses seem to do okay out of the bargain. Um, but yeah, yes, the... it's a farming kind of thing, right? It's like you can have tolerable farming or intolerable farming. I mean, it's yes. still farming, but... What's particularly interesting is this notion of people that are woken up every morning by their pets. Like, there are already organic alarm clocks that right. people use um, quite skillfully when the, the pet gets hungry 
it'll wake the owner up, which is basically the function of an alarm clock in its rawest form. Right. So, yeah, no, it is interesting, this notion of uh, organic alarm clocks as a means. But again, um, yeah, I guess the kind of spaces I'm in currently, just to give some update to where I am, uh, is that leading into the uh, pandemic, obviously, I had a bunch of issues, which actually, unfortunately, became this podcast and other related things that I touched issues. And ironically, when we sold our house in San Jose, I bought a, a por- well, not a portrait, a picture of the Somme that had been painted by a, a German artist who actually served in World War I. Um, and in communicating with the fellow who maintained the artist's Wikipedia page, uh, he said to me, oh, yeah, look, this happens all the time. People are paid money, they come in, they delete articles on Wikipedia, it's just done. So the whole nature of the paid-for removal of all our stuff from Wikipedia, and unfortunately, clearly, Tim Taylor and co. never really got onto the A-Life side of things. So all this stuff was happening through, but I had an underlying interest that I had this simulation, which still existed and still was remotely interesting to me. And wouldn't it be interesting to look at um, points in history? And there seems to be, there was a kind of renaissance, at least through the pandemic of London in in the 1930s and 1940s, uh, mainly in fiction writing, um, of which my wife consumed a good quantity of them. And I thought London in 1940 had uh, roughly 8.5 million people in it. So it is quite an interesting ecosystem to simulate, so to speak. But also, um, there's a strange phenomenon which I've noticed in my own interest in history, that basically history becomes mythology, and it becomes mythology through a variety uh, of factors, both actively human factors and just the way um, you know history is, as an, an almost non-static thing. So I was quite interested in whether or not I could simulate a a cityscape as large as London, and London and surrounds, we're talking about 100 miles by 100 miles, which includes the coastline. Uh, and thankfully, a friend of mine who has periodically appeared in this podcast, uh, back when it had a name, uh, Bob Mottram, got back in contact and actually helped me quite a great deal with the maps, uh, which you, I purchased from the Library of Scotland. The Library of Scotland had about, I think there were about 10 maps that I use. Um, which gave us a data set, which was just amazing. So now we have this data set. We have it in a JSON file format. We have it, um, obviously, historically, I'd simulated landscapes as well as part of my artificial life tinkerings. Um, so we have all that stuff as well. And now we're, or I'm going back to the actual agent-based modeling part of the problem, which is you have a huge area that is defined, thankfully, um, in, you know, maps and other data. And then you have the problem of just simulating it for a period of time. Now, 1940 is a particularly interesting date as well, uh, because also um, if things had happened in the Second World War differently, um, the Germans might have set foot on, um, certainly on England and Mm -hmm. through parts of uh, London through that period of time. And the quality and information of simulation and just sheer information is fundamentally naive. It was played as war games through the 1960s by the military to get a sense of... It was called... Well, the the possibility that um, Germany would invade was called Sea Line, Operation Sea Line, which is what Hitler and his folks named it. Um, And it's actually quite an interesting simulation problem as well because you have a functioning city of eight and a half million of whom a good number were actively being trained uh to be you know basically a paramilitary or guerrilla like organization if um you know if england was invaded so through the pandemic i gathered together a series of books there's you can actually buy classified documents now um about uh how the home guard formed and I have a booklet of the entire Home Guard for um, southeast of England for the area that I'm looking to simulate. So, uh, and the training manuals are available, or actually, people that scan them into PDF now, which makes it a little bit easier. But I own the original paper ones from 1940 as well. And even mysteriously, you can get the Luftwaffe stuff. Uh, you can get the, all the maps the Luftwaffe used, and obviously, the Luftwaffe was engaged in the Battle of Britain at the time, so they were actively bombing england 
Um, and you can get all the recruiting stuff and you can, you know, you can, you, it's actually quite amazing the amount of documentation you can actually get about this once you have some kind of lingering interest once in you know to look. simulating yeah. agents. Well, I, ironically, the, the folks that got me, actually, the folks that got me the picture, um, of the SOM were helpful with some things. Uh, but no, all this stuff is paper. There's very little of it that's, uh, there are people that are, and I'm supporting the people that are, actively scanning a lot of this documentation in and obviously you have things like the london bombing maps which unfortunately are very difficult to verify these days and actually if you go to the and every town in england has a historical society or had a historical society at least through the 80s and 90s uh, 1980s and 1990s and they wrote long treaties but they can't tell you exactly when specific churches were bombed for example or even that they were catholic churches and not Churches of England and things like this. So the whole history of the Second World War is moving into this area of mythology um, in actual stuff. And I think it's interesting to write simulations around that now because you can come back and analyze the data in a very different way. So um, I've been kind of dabbling both in my simulation <laughs> interests, my computational interests. And ironically, um, although the state of the art so to speak is really difficult to access online currently uh, it's not just what's happened with wikipedia or google as well it's very difficult to get in contact with people that are doing meaningful analysis and simulation work in these areas currently uh, i do periodically get you know a pdf here occasionally um, of for example archaeologists that are using simulation now and agent modeling oh, and so you know there are fascinating people doing very interesting work out there but it's really hard to get access to their work yeah. currently. And so I've been in this, um, I mean, every day is a different, a different thing, right? In terms of bugs and tracking and very amazingly in the past uh, year and a little bit, I've had two daughters, which has changed my life inextricably. So I'm also, you know, doing the full fatherhood thing where possible while it's basically still working in the same salt mine. And, um, but the simulation work is very, very interesting because you get to a kind of agent modeling, which obviously other folk are doing currently because the archaeologists are, are trying to do it currently. And it's interesting talking with folks like Roy Plotnick. I reached out to Roy when I found the archaeologist doing agent modeling and he hasn't really done much agent modeling for his stuff in the past 10 odd years. So, you know, a lot of the historical folk are, you know, not really continuing with it. Um, but it is, you know, it is fascinating looking at principles of, you know, JSON robustness over parsing over multiple maps over, you know, you just throw it to this data and it still needs, you still need a means to visualize it, which I've got, thankfully. It's like I have all the pieces for the puzzle. I just need to put the puzzle together, basically. Yeah, it's, it's always interesting how hard it is to find the right stuff. Well, right. I just don't think you see it. I mean, I go back to first principles and just say it probably doesn't exist. Let's roll up our sleeves and redo it. And I'm very thankful for all the stuff that I've done to date and all the folks that have helped me with the stuff that I've done to date. And this podcast series is part of that as well. But realistically, for example, football hooliganism, let's talk about the element that I'm <laughs> going to be using. There was actually simulation done of football hooliganism in 2000, in the 2000s, up to the 2000s. Um, it, became, it became a phenomenon which obviously the police cracked down on it. You can buy half a dozen self-published works of former football hooligans talking about their lives, but there's no discussion associated with, um, firstly, the historical evolution of hooliganism in, in England, but, I mean, you know, it exists all over the world. I mean, the current, you know, let's say nonsense that's going on, many of the discussive forces originate as football hooligans. Funnily enough, so it's very strange to, uh, particularly the Ukrainian football hooligan um, origins, are fascinating. So I think you know there are gaps, basically, both in the literature and the simulation associated with this, and certainly associated with agent modelling around that. Although the stuff that was done in two thousand that I can see at least made one video game. So you know that's basically which, which game was that? Um, I think it's called Football. <laughs> Oh they did do half a dozen other really curious. They did a re um, repaired, bombed out Europe after the Second World War, which was a fascinating simulation. I mean, they did do a series of simulations in their repertoire. Um, but yeah, I, I bought the book that 
was supposed to contain the published data that they had. And unfortunately, I booked a later edition and that whole chapter had been removed. So, you know, the usual problems kind of came into play. And also, just talking with people in England, they were just like, no, you have anything to do with football hooliganism? This whole project will stink. We're not going to have anything to do with it. It's like, okay, I'm just not going to write it. I mean, the, the, the social nature of what football hooliganism did I mean, I lived in England through that period of time. I was pushed off trains periodically by police and filmed because I just mysteriously went on a day with my wife using the same train system that Manchester United fans were using. So, I mean, I experienced basically the the end of football hooliganism as it was created in England. Um, but, yeah, it is very curious now that and obviously, this one correspondent who may or might have been listening to this podcast was, um, you know, but, but it, it does beg a serious question about actually the nature of simulating history. The next uh, historical period that I would love to dig into more, mainly because through another podcast I've done, I've had primary access to a fellow who was a prisoner of war in Vietnam. And the whole history of Vietnam is more than mythology now. This is the Vietnam War specifically. It's actually completely redacted and piecemeal the best histories you can get of vietnam are from 1975 um afterwards the u.s military primarily came in and just changed the whole nature of what the history of vietnam was um and there are institutes which are you know publishing their own histories of vietnam but let's take this back to a life my interest well not even i wouldn't call it a life i call it agent modeling uh but my interest is um in simulating a population through like normal times and then simulating the population through perturbed times and see what can actually come out of the simulation with the view that it you're dealing with, like I say, probably eight and a half million agents initially, plus whatever number your imaginary dictator throws on the on the battlefield. And it's a very a very topical and unique simulation, I think. Um and certainly I've gotten a lot of really interesting feedback. It's one of these things where when I started developing my only early simulations with the apes on the islands, I got maybe half a dozen interested academics. And I told a variety of folk about this. And London in the 1940s is a particular intersection in terms of people's thinking and creating any meaningful information about this. I know a fellow, for example, who does YouTube's wandering around London currently and constantly films areas of where, you know, they're bombed out, historically have been bombed out buildings and no longer they've rebuilt. And the histories that he is given associated with this are very mythological. They're not what you would consider to be history anymore. And it's interesting, the role of simulation almost as a, not necessarily a reinforcement, but a means of testing hypotheses more than anything. Right. Um, so anyway, that's my day-to-day. Literally, it's just regular memory leaks, bug fixes, crashes, and other... I mean, it's software engineering fundamentally, but it is genuinely fascinating to get to a point where you're like, okay, well, here's... I've put a video online, for example, of the map set. We now... The map set's not brilliant. It still needs a lot of manual editing. I'm writing a manual editor as well to go through the JSON and make sure the buildings actually look like buildings. Um, And the internals of them, obviously, we don't know. So, thankfully, historically, I've simulated the internals of buildings based on just the spaces so but that's based on contemporary buildings it's not based on english architecture of the 1940s which i now have a couple of books on and i think are probably just a tweak of those rules basically so you know these are the things that are um, but also part of doing this stuff is actually getting other folks involved and interested and thankfully bob mottram came back he came back for a period of time but he's got particular interests which are mainly about creating the next open source Twitter and not <laughs> associated with this kind of simulation. Right. So the aim is like, you know, are there people that are interested in the data set? Because it's an amazing data set. I mean, London in 1940 to, you know, a building base where you can literally open doors and walk into buildings. I would have thought it had some interest to someone, but it's just, you know, you don't have traditional Google, you don't have traditional Wikipedia, you don't have traditional means to put these things out there. You're just basically working on your own particular websites, doing your own particular data analysis. And thankfully, I've got things like this, which occasionally reach a few folks. So, Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting. I mean, any kind of simulation is sort of fascinating to me personally. But it's, I actually looked, I googled the, uh, the game that you were talking about. <laughs> it's 
it's pretty hilarious that someone's actually made a, a game around it. It's pretty fun to I think it's more a story, which is the book that it's published. The book that has published it is really how uh, people that do this kind of stuff academically need to be very, let's say, neurodiverse, for want of a better term, uh, in order to get funding for their work. I mean, really what they're talking, or what is apparently, allegedly the chapter was about, because I never actually got to read it, uh, but it, it's in a narrative associated with academics that sell their work to Microsoft, for example, or academics that sell their work to EA and get games made out of it, which I think is actually probably quite interesting and historically at least has been topical for this podcast. So it's very much of like, you know, academics that have been tinkering away. They're looking to maintain funding for however many years. So they sell the rights of their simulations to a video games company. And there's a list of them. There's um, a dozen or so that they list in the book um, as being the way of the future. And I think large scale, large scale environment uh, games are just absolutely fascinating. I mean, most of them, unfortunately, are based on military simulation, um, which is another part of this. But the essence of creating interesting simulations and then s- selling those simulations to buyers um, was a, certainly a curious narrative in 2005. I don't know where it exists now. I mean, uh, I don't think either of us have worked for the company formerly known as Meta. Or maybe currently known as Meta, but right. you know they're talking very much about creating these sized universes with, I guess, simulated entities. But I've every time a Meta recruiter reaches out to me, I say to them, "Hey, I've got this project where I'm simulating London in 1940. Wouldn't this be of interest to you?" And crickets, you know. <laughs> so, um, but uh, you know, it's an interesting principle that these simulations, particularly at scale, would have an interest outside of you know, traditional academia and actually be used in industry accordingly. Um, but I don't know if you've, you've kind of had a, a life experience in the games industry and I'm very pleased that you're uh, enjoying Adobe as much as you are. Yeah, no, I think it's games are a lot of the stuff that we, we do in games. We're actually doing now because the, the app we're working on is, um, you know, modeling and it's also works in VR. And so yeah. it needs to be real time. And so we're writing it in a, very game-like fashion, actually, compared to a t- sort of traditional editing um, application. So a lot of that stuff is very applicable. Um, but yeah, just being able to deal with large, you know, large quantities of data uh, is actually quite quite useful. You know, whether the the other thing that um you know the other modeling thing that I worked on for at Sony, the Dreams game, um, we actually had some research, random research projects where we used. Uh, agent simulation to do procedural effects on the sculpting surface, like put little creatures on it and have them sort of like add texture to the, to the sculpts and things of that nature. So that stuff shows up all over the place, I think. So um, it's always surprisingly useful. I'm sure agent simulations for, for war have been done a lot, right? I mean, at least I would imagine they'd be done, you know, as part of war games for the government or whatever. I guess that stuff's probably pretty secret, but... I would, I would, it's a bit surprising to hear that people haven't done um, essentially more of it. Um, just even in academia, it seems like since they do it for the stock market, <laughs> you would think that they would do it for, for military conflicts and things. Well, yes, you have the problem of secrecy. You have the problem also, I, I didn't even really dabble while I was in Australia. A part of my Australian escape was working for, uh, well, they called themselves a VR lab, but they were always courting military and aerospace and a bunch of um but the the thing that struck me about that was just the immense amount of financial weight like literally working with nasa briefly they had an office that was like a school building you know had individual rooms and what have you and you'd go into you know a floor like the second floor and every room would be filled with sun workstations, like literally floor to ceiling sun workstations Jeez. in boxes. And you just think this is what they, this is their fight. Like they need to have a financial you know, year over year. We need this number of yeah, billion for, of and all we can do is that. Uh, and when I talked to them, actually, they were doing a Mars rover. I mean, obviously, historically, this podcast was associated with that kind of stuff as well. And uh, yeah, none of it was open source. So none of it was interactive. I'm like, you know, you could have actually sold 
like a majority of your problems by now if you'd actually released it open source and you know there were 15 year old kids that had downloaded it in fact the irony was that um it was when i was doing it this will put a time frame on as well was about when they released the iMac years ago like we're talking 2000s early to no late 90s even and um you know OpenGL on the iMac gave you basically the same amount of of power that you had in one of these some (laughs) extension machines except for obviously a fourth or an eighth of the price but yeah my recollection associated with these things is it's just about maintaining a spending like the technology is completely tertiary they'll have a, a demo of what they want but yeah the whole nature of more you know integrated collaboration all the open source stuff that i've historically like but yeah around large data sets is actually really fascinating and that's my hope that this is just a a field of interest that is being cultivated somewhere i do periodically you know read that certain universities have certain interests there was one posted actually literally that came in this morning where half the requirements for the master's and PhD students were, you know, five-letter acronyms associated with editions, Python library editions and things like that. So, I mean, my sense is it's probably being done somewhere, but the difficulty in actually obtaining that, and it's far more fun, actually, to work a lot of the stuff from the ground up. Um, And I think that's still a kind of lingering problem that, you know, certainly when Bob Bottrom gets involved, He's got his own suite of algorithms for map analysis that he could dig into and just produce output. And then I've got my additional algorithms that I like. And we're just, you know, we're hybridizing based on our own collective knowledge. I do wonder for folks starting out, I mean, there's a lot, as you, probably your experience associated with the reinvention of the wheel continuously. Um, but I've always tried to put my stuff at least downloadable and tinkerable, um, whether or not people can access it as a, a different thing. But yeah, as a field, I, uh, it seems that we've become considerably more fractured. I know there are academics that have historically published great stuff, particularly in terms of collective works. Uh, but that uh, the availability of that quickly online or easily accessible just doesn't seem to be there. Reddit is an interesting... I think you were talking to me about Reddit when we last spoke many years ago, a couple of years ago now. I mean, I'm finding Reddit a very interesting way that this thing could potentially explode there's a lot of what i think historically we talked about as peacocking on reddit but i think the potential for them to you know make it into the next wikipedia is hopeful if they have a few folk involved uh but you know it's always hard when it's one platform because you know there's always tensions around (laughs) finding stuff and or, or having stuff that other people don't like and so i think it's always healthy to have multiple places yeah it would be um, nice wouldn't it but yeah it's <laughs> yeah the, the online social thing is, is tricky and the, the, the information finding thing is tricky um because yeah like you said it's like even if the stuff is out there and it's great finding it is often like either impossible or just like harder than actually rewriting it like yeah. you basically have to start rewriting it to some extent just to build up the vocabulary of what it is even that you're searching for and then once you're like halfway in it and you're like, well, might as well just use my thing at this point because I'm already sort of, I, I get it, right? And it's, I think that's how they proliferate. It's like you don't really know what you, you need until you build it at least partially or at least understand what why people are doing things the way they're doing it. So I, I don't know. I, I think that seems pretty fundamental. Um, I don't know how we get over that as, as an engineering discipline because that seems really hard. Yeah, it, well, it seems completely counterintuitive, which is why I put the audio out, but I think um, it really is a very strange thing that we're coming into and probably something that we couldn't have even predicted. I mean, the, the benefits of gathering as much as you could and learning as much as you could and doing as much as you could in a very you know particular time seems now quite secondary. In parallel to this, I should also point out with regards to the seat line development, I am writing as well with the hope that a portion of it will be put online free to download a portion might end up in in some kind of toxic book form but it it, the actual documentation of this and going through the process even the uh somewhat amusing tales of football hooliganism i think probably is benefit in actually documenting in some fashion i mean a portion of it will exist online a portion of it will exist in a pdf 
downloadable portionable links just you know, like I say, maybe even paper form. But I, I found it very important documenting. And certainly my early simulation, I um, documented relatively heavily as well. I think it's really, I don't even understand how Google works anymore. My suspicion is that it um, has a series of rules, a series of paid for components, and then you get out what kind of slurry is left at the end. Uh, but the idea of actually putting it online in writing at least means that it's discoverable, hopefully by a small number of like-minded folks. I'm not sure what your other hobbies are, but I find in other hobbies, you know, there are these people that are just constantly trying to gather information. Um, and you occasionally meet them and you occasionally download the information they have and upload the information that you have given to them. And you feel like you buoyed yourselves in some sense. And I think this is probably what's going to happen with this kind of information. I mean, there are, it's interesting the universities that are, teaching aspects of this and what aspects they're missing and actually a lot of the history is being missed in you know for just teaching the stuff like you would learn python for example or you know some other programming language you would learn this but the history behind it is oftentimes how elaborate and also how broken some aspects of it are I think in particular, the teaching associated with neural networks and how to use them and how to adapt them and uh, this kind of stuff is really very interesting. I'm not sure you follow any of that, but it kind of works in parallel to a lot of what you would describe as a life, what I would describe as a series of different things, basically. Yeah, um, definitely the hot thing. I've, I followed it a bit when I worked at Google and mm. I do a little bit for follow it for, for work now, but um, not a ton. But yeah, there's definitely lots of different aspects to it and there's yeah like you said a huge you know there's obviously like the theoretical body of knowledge around it and then there's like the the very engineering body of knowledge around how to duct tape these frameworks together to get this thing to run well, on this cloud or that cloud c- contemporary just, computing has made it i mean it's completely in the 80s i used to run simulations associated with neural networks that were in really slow you know, you'd see it evolve, literally you'd leave it for an hour or two and you'd come back and you'd see what, you know, you needed to see from that. And in a cell phone now you have more processing power than you ever had there and hence facial recognition works and these kind of things work. Uh, part of it is obviously the, um, you know, the algorithms behind it and the development of the algorithms. Part of it is just raw processing. Oh, and that's yeah. what yeah, I'm actually finding fascinating with the C-Line stuff is that I can do things now which I never would have ever considered doing, you know, 20 years ago just because of the processing and things that are like N-squared problems where I'm like, this is an N-squared problem. There's no point in, you know, moving forward with this. And they're like, okay, let me run. Okay, it's nothing. Like even in the cloud emulating (laughs) it, it's nothing. So the nature of contemporary processing really changes the game very distinctly. And I think that's how you get innovation I mean, clearly there's a lot of algorithmic change and clearly there's a, um, you know, a whole bunch of uh, breakthroughs in computation and what have you. But it's just amazing, as you say, in the cloud and these kind of, you can get stuff you'd never even imagine. You'd write code now, which you'd never imagine writing um, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, yeah, and you almost need like a new generation of people to write it because, you know, I some of the stuff that gets thrown around is like so horribly inefficient and yet it's still the right thing to do that but i like i I find it hard to sometimes like bring myself to even write that kind of code because it's just so abusive to 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 the computer well you want to do smart things i mean we probably will both you know raise taught whatever grab together what we needed through a period of time where you needed to find a better way. You always had to find a smarter way to do something because of the processing that you had access to. Um, but yeah, it's interesting, the, the new problem space. I think there are different methodologies which people have adopted. Um, and yes, new people is always good, but new people that understand some aspect of the history is incredibly important as well. Yeah, I think it's almost akin to like money management in a way. It's like if you grow up and you don't have a lot of money, you, you try to like be very careful with it and stuff like that. And then, it, but after a certain point, that level of detail like can't be sustained. You know, if you're like the CEO of a company or something, you can't be going around, you know, the floor and making sure that no M&Ms are wasted in your kitchens at the giant corporate office, right? Like you just don't have the time in your day to sort of micromanage every bit of 
financial stuff. And I think that's partly what's sort of happening with these computing resources that people have gotten so compute rich that it just doesn't make any sense to sort of care that much like you can't if you want to accomplish these bigger things. So I think that, you know, that's the more, uh, I guess, um, should I put it like, I guess that that's the positive way I could imagine it as opposed to just being like, oh, this is just insanely wasteful and people should just be better engineers. But like, I think it's, it's just the reality of when you have this vast amount of resources, you simply can't really, you start to think about different problems, right? You're talking mm. about like investing, you know, a billion dollars in this company versus like, you know, making sure you get the, the cheap beans versus the expensive beans. <laughs> you sort of transcend it to a different level of optimization, right? You're not, you're not talking about dollars anymore. You're talking about billions of dollars. And so you, you do have to start to, uh, change your mental model of what's important kind of quite fundamentally and spend your energy on, on different things. And, uh, you know, so maybe it's partly that as well, because if you're, if you're working in these data centers and like, yeah, what well, it's fine to sort of spin up 10,000 machines just to like add a couple of numbers that you could do on your laptop, but like whatever, just, you know, I've already got this tool, <laughs> like might as well just use it because that's where my head's at. This comes into machine learning too, but the ability of um, non-real-time computation versus real-time computation, like if you do extra processing in a non-real-time space, then when you present the data in the real-time space, the processing is less, for want of a better term. And I think this certainly hit me with the sea line stuff, is that it's when we get the larger data sets, you do particular crunching, particular optimization, optimization to make sure that when the data is presented to the agents, for example, then you have a, a data set which is absolutely exactly what they need at that specific time. And basically you've done as much heavy lifting as you can in the in the parsing and the polishing of the data and present it accordingly. Um, and I think these are, you know, these are principles which obviously are independent of the stuff that historically we've talked about in these kind of podcasts, but the environment... Um, creating an environment, a rich environment for these agent entities to interact and exist in and be observed in. You, now you have the luxury of, of how you actually create that data and the information you contain, that the data contains. And when you have large data sets, obviously how you parse that data and how you get the data out to the agent as quickly as possible. So, yeah, I certainly, the distinction between doing a lot of heavy lifting initially, so you don't have to do any heavy lifting in the real-time component that people observe, um, is certainly something that I'm getting out of the sea line development quite heavily. So are you running your, your thing like up in the cloud somewhere? Or are you doing it locally? What I uh, look, I've got, I'm using GitLab heavily because I'm, I haven't historically used GitHub and thankfully it still maintains Bob Mottram occasionally. So I, um, most of it is getting one data set, processing the data set into a JSON format, which is best accessible to the agents and, the JSON format has changed maybe half a dozen times and also obviously maintaining because you, you're dealing with maps of the 1940, like 1940, literally PNG files of maps of the 1940s. So, you know, you change some aspect of the algorithm, particularly with regards to coastlines or sand distribution or however you're modeling that. And then mysteriously the JSON breaks somewhere in this, you know, eight to 10 gig JSON file. So, um, I'm using a combination of factors. In fact, uh, GitLab makes it very easy to distribute this kind of stuff in the pre-processing to get the data ready. Uh, and then the agent models can obviously also be run in the cloud as well, just in terms of testing. So I'm doing increasingly a majority of the heavy lifting in the cloud uh, and just literally visualization, basic analysis and um, you know hypothesis more than anything. And occasionally you'll get crashes that you have to look into that require you to actually run it locally. But everything can run locally through scripts too, although it's not particularly fun. So, you know, I'm doing a lot more, as as the vernacular says, in the cloud now than I ever would have historically done. Uh, but also the nature of the data sets are just huge. And the processing time... So, for example, if I do it on my laptop, if I process all of the area 100 miles by 100 miles... It takes typically 14 hours um, worth of processing. So I can do that and I have done that on a couple of occasions to get the data set exactly the way I want it. But it's far easier to make uh, coding, you know, coding changes in the JSON and then set it up on 
thankfully GitLab allows me for a certain number of gigabytes, you know, in all possible directions. And then thankfully I can download the created PNG files that come from this and then just analyze those. So I've changed the way I do a life quite fundamentally. And this is still using the same Ape SDK that I've been using for, I don't know, 30 years now. So um, it is really quite striking how my flow, for want of a better term, has changed. But also a lot of that. Um, so when you're working in open source with another developer, they can do whatever they like and frequently do. Um, and actually part of the interesting learning is comes from that. So a good portion of the code that exists is to test the data set and to make sure that the data set is still robust and there aren't squirrely things like, you know, no beaches in a particular map. So that creates a bunch of unnecessary JSON and stuff like that. So it's, um yeah, more in the cloud than I'd historically done, but still the aim is to have something which is like an app, basically, that's runnable and enables you to interact with the environment as presented. But you're dealing with relatively large JSON output. You're dealing with a relatively large data set. And also it's a data set that, um, as is independently rendered, has problems within it that still need manual editing after the fact. Um, And the manual editor I have on my machine. But also, similarly, maintain it in the cloud, maintain it command line, maintain it so I can get PNG files out whenever I want them of, you know, what the latest and greatest maps look like. Um, so what do you do when you process these maps as like image processing kind of stuff that you're trying to do on them? So uh, Bob has a, a suite of things which he does associated with, um, there's a bit of nearest neighbor calculation. There's a bit of Gaussian blurring. There's a bunch of stuff that he uses for the analysis. I had kind of basic color analysis, which still had a relative spectrum in it associated with the maps, but he, uh, has a, a whole suite which you can have a look at, um, which does a variety of things for analyzing the maps and then creating the, the JSON output. Um, there are problems with it. I mean, the, the creation of the buildings is still pretty haphazard from my view. There's nothing like a manual edit over the top of what he puts out. Um, but yeah, it's a combination of factors to make the JSON and he has multiple layer processing as well. So for example, he'll, do maps with one algorithm and then take the maps. They're about, like I said, 10 or so maps, uh, and then do additional processing on the map JSON output to get additional JSON output. So he's got various layers of processing that he uses with the maps as well. Um, and yeah, it's quite, I mean, literally I was getting burnt out with this project early on in COVID and Bob came through and just, you know, redid everything that I was getting annoyed with. Um, and now has left me a data set. Um, which has its own problems as well. I mean, it's very interesting, just the, you know, many different um, permutations of JSON data, basically. Um, but yeah, so that's it. And, and what do you, what's your um, kind of goal in, in mind? Uh, I mean, other than just... I mean, uh, so historically, I had an urban simulation, which ironically was based on a terrorist simulation that I wrote in 1997. And um, that created basically noble apes wandering over an urban cityscape um, and, you know, opening doors and moving around. And the idea through that was that they would each get a house and have a profession and, uh, you know, start behaving based on their professions. And you'd have things like shopping centers and stuff like that and just sim- basically taking an organic environment and making it into a cityscape and using a lot of the same analysis that used in the organic environment to create agents in a cityscape so you may or may not have seen that in videos or downloaded or whatever uh but that still exists and i still maintain that i mean that's actually um when i can't get london to look the way i want to look i go back to the uh, algorithmically created maps of cities um, that i have built historically uh because they give you you know walls and doors and windows and things like that um, so the aim is to have London, um, probably based on the PNG maps. I, the PNG with the, um, overlay of the agent models is actually incredibly compelling, uh, because you can see, you know, the buildings and the walls and the trains and these kind of things as, uh, overlays on top of the map. That's so, cool. I'd love to see some video. Uh, I, yeah, uh, I'm, 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 I need to start getting that stuff on more like videoing. Um, the difficulty is, 
the nature of kind of small deltas, as in bug fixes and, oh no, you know, this data set that comes to me in points that I convert into lines crashes eccentrically in this particular position, um, which is just the nature of the day-to-day. And then also the map editing is also interesting because you've got a you've got an environment that you have to move around. But yeah, I need to record some video of me just scrolling around one of these maps with yeah. stuff on it and get a sense of that. Um, the I mean, the, I have historically every couple of months recorded YouTube on this, and it's interesting. I get periodic likes and interest through that, but I just would love to get more people um, interested in the project through that. But yeah, I'll. I'm, I'm overdue a video. I wanted to get the map editing to a point where I could at least show it. There's eccentricities with the file handling and things like that, which, um, but yeah, just to show it because it's actually quite cool to see the overlay over the map of the environment and, um, and then also yeah, talk about the really agent models. I haven't seen anything like that. I think that would be pretty unique and especially compelling. Driving. Yeah, it's especially compelling, but you know, you create a YouTube video, it goes out in the ether and. You know, time goes on and occasionally you get the likes of Bob Bottrum, but not always. But yeah, I'm at the stage where I just need to get the map editor. The map editor is actually fun to use. I mean, I've used um, a lot of the Mac image editing packages. Of course, your current company is responsible for one of them. Um, but yeah, the, the, the buttery, the butteriness, as they say in the industry, of moving around these images, which are huge data sets, just like, you, you know, you're just moving your fingers across them. Uh, yeah, that would make compelling video. I need to get that out. Um, but you know, there's always that one bug. You know, that's sort of nature of the nature of this. Unfortunately, you just you like can cut the video together. It's right. When, yeah, around, can, yeah. I'm not. I, I don't know. I'm too honest. That's always been my problem in these circumstances. Yeah, you can't but yeah, too honest when you make videos. Yeah, I've, 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 you, I should. I should get all. Uh, as long as the message is honest, I think you're fine. <laughs> think, you know, what it's I mean? a slippery slope as far as I'm concerned. In any case, yeah, I should. I'm over to a video. By a couple of months, so I need to get one together. Um, at least just show the movement around the data set and the editing of it. But yeah, the uh, so the idea is that you have simulated agents over the top of the data set that'll move around. It's it's basically London in 1940 with a very slight chance of invasion. So the invasion part of it really is incredibly secondary, but also just has been a fascinating reading, if nothing more. Um, just to show the, you know, there's a lot of really interesting reading, um, through this, particularly associated with how, well, it has a, I mean, very similar to football hooliganism. It has a very striking response to a lot of people. I mean, I personally, on both my mother's and father's side of the family, have Second World War related, um, deaths and other things. So it is still very much in, in people's minds. Uh, but the simulation aspect of it and just getting the data looking right um, is aesthetically, and certainly probably a majority of the folks that keep in contact with me about it are interested in that. So I'm owed, I'm owed to get out of video. I need to get out of video without question. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to that. So um, I still have about half an hour, and I'm not sure what you're up to. Is there anything else you want to talk about? I've actually probably got to get back to the kids soon, but... Um... <laughs> It's been super cool catching up. Definitely. Uh, yeah, well, no, we need to do it more frequently. I think uh, two and two years and three months is probably a little bit too long. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully I'll have something something uh, in, interesting to show. Maybe I'll, I'll pick up on the clock thing and definitely have a, have a new one to show next time. Yeah, maybe with plants and fish. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> I'll talk to you soon, Anton. Take, Take care. care. Yeah, See pleasure. You.